You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Jason McElligot, Keeper of Marsh's Library and Adjunct Professor in the UCD School of History. His paper was entitled Bram Stoker and the Undead History of Williamite Ireland. I want to start with a quiz because who doesn't like quizzes? and three questions. You're starting for ten. Uh, what was the date in 1605 when England was delivered from the evils of popery and the gunpowder plot? 5th of November. 5th of November. Uh, and your uh, second question for five. Uh, what was the date in 1688 when England was delivered from popery by the uh, providential landing of William of Orange uh, in England? 5th of November. Now here's the trick question. What's the date in Dracula when Jonathan Harker and his colleagues confront and defeat the monster? In other words, when good triumphs over evil and when Christ wins out over Antichrist? That's the 5th of November. Now, it seems to me the first two dates are coincidental, uh, but the third is unlikely to be uh, coincidental. Uh, And if one reads Dracula uh, as a story about good versus evil, Christ uh, versus Antichrist, then it's likely that the date of the 5th of November is informed by his uh, understanding of English history uh, and uh, of the 17th century. And as uh, many of you will know, the Book of Common Prayer uh, from 1662 prescribed a particular uh, form of ceremony for the 5th of November to celebrate deliverance Uh, from the Popish plot, and after 1690, uh, it added to that celebration on the 5th of November the deliverance uh, with William. Uh, That form of prayer continued until 1859, uh, when uh, Stoker would have been uh, a young boy approaching uh, teenage uh, life. So I don't think that the 5th of November uh, is an incidental, uh, accidental date. Uh, Stoker, as we... uh, as we uh, know, is long ignored as a sort of a, as an author of uh, pot boilers uh, and not of any great interest uh, long after his death in 1912. From the 1970s onwards, he was reassessed by uh, Freudians, feminists, uh, and Marxists. Uh, and in recent years, there's been another level of uh, reassessment, uh, particularly uh, in connection with the uh, centenary of his death uh, in 2012. And I take from it. Uh, when uh, literary scholars are are looking at Stoker now, that two of the things they stress about him is, first of all, uh, his Irishness. He's no longer uh, 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 seen as a British uh, author, but as uh, as an Irish author. In particular, much is made of his support for home rule in the 1880s and the 1890s. The other uh, strong tenant uh, seems to be his modernity. Uh, He's no longer somebody who looks back to the past, but someone who's quite modern uh, in the mid-19th century, and that's shown uh, in terms of literature with his love of Walt Whitman and Edgar Allan Poe, uh, and also uh, the embracing of technology in many uh, of his novels, cars, uh, aeroplanes, reproductive technologies uh, in terms of the printed word uh, and the spoken word, which are one of the ways in which which Jonathan Harker and his colleagues defeat the vampire uh, in Dracula. 
And also, I suppose, unconsciously, uh, part of this marrying of his Irishness and his love of modernity is the emphasis laid on him nowadays uh, as his uh, great love uh, for the United States uh, of America, because what could be more uh, Irish than uh, enthusiasm uh, for Mary Kay? Uh, now, I think there are useful uh, insights, but in, in opening up those fields, we're perhaps missing some of the background. And, and in what I want to talk about today, I want to st uh, talk about uh, Stoker's upbringing uh, in the context of records uh, which survive uh, in Dublin and his upbringing in a middle-class uh, Victorian household in which his identity was both Irish and British, and that's important to stress that it was possible to be Irish and British in Dublin in the mid-19th century in the same way as it's possible to be Scottish and British in Edinburgh uh, uh, today. Uh, perhaps that might not be true uh, in a hundred years' time in Scotland, but it is true now uh, in Scotland, and it was true uh, in Ireland in the mid-19th century. But his background was once steeped in the Bible uh, and the ancient animosities of Ireland. Uh, and I'm basing my uh, remarks uh, on Stoker's uh, visit uh, to uh, Marsh's Library uh, in 1866 and 1867. Seven visits that he made uh, walking through the graveyard of St. Patrick's Cathedral uh, up into the library, uh, visiting on seven occasions over those uh, two years, uh, and entering a library which had changed little, uh, if at all, over the previous uh, hundred and uh, 50 years. Now, Marsh's at the time was an institution in considerable uh, crisis, and one of those crises, I won't go into the, uh, all of the crises, uh, but one of those crises uh, had to do with a series of thefts discovered in 1863. Now, there is probably, and I hope that there is, a very special place in the eighth circle of Dante's hell for book thieves, but uh, there were a series of book thefts in Marsh's library uh, in the 1860s. Uh, obviously it's, it's not good when books are stolen, but in terms of historical research, the thefts uh, have a very positive influence because they encourage the library to tighten its security procedures. So for about 20 years after 1863, we have very detailed records uh, of what people read when they came into the library. Unfortunately, after about 1883, they went back to their old ways uh, and didn't record what people read when they came in. Well, thankfully, uh, we know what the young 18-year-old Bram Stoker read when he visited the library on seven occasions uh, in 1866 and uh, 1867. Now, Stoker in later life reckoned that he'd written about half a million letters and, and memos, but these were all, uh, almost all, uh, in connection with business affairs. And we know really very little about his internal uh, thoughts and, uh, and opinions. So the records uh, at Marsh's Library of what he read uh, in the 1860s can give us uh, some insight into his intellectual preoccupations uh, and they may be suggestive of his political, cultural and social milieu uh, in which he grew up. Uh, they're obviously useful in terms of assessing his literary output uh, in later life, but also uh, in terms of assessing the other great well-known visits of his to the British Museum and Whitby Public Library to read in terms of his literary uh, output. Now, for the purposes of this paper, I'm going to divide uh, his reading of about 33 books with about 50 titles uh, within them into three distinct uh, strands. Uh, the first is uh, canonical literature, the second is travel literature, and the third, uh, perhaps explaining why this paper is at this conference uh, is in terms of sectarian literature uh, of the 17th uh, century. Now, 
The young Stoker had a long-standing interest in the theatre and literature, and it's no surprise that when he visited the library in 1866 and 1867, uh, he requested uh, a number uh, of literary works. Uh, His works that he was interested in are focused very much on the 17th century. Uh, So, for example, he read three volumes of the great works of uh, the playwright Ben Jonson. He read the 1679 edition uh, of the works of Edmund Spencer that you can see there. And also called up uh, the uh, works of the royalist poet Edmund Waller, which were very strongly uh, nationalistic and nationalist in in an English sense. Uh, For example, his Upon a War with Spain and a Fight at Sea, or To the King on His Navy, as celebrations of the the Royal Navy. But Stoker paid uh, particular attention to Chaucer, uh, both in the context of an edition of Chaucer's own writings and also uh, an edition by Dryden, and this is uh, Dryden's uh, edition, uh, of Chaucer's works, which placed him in the context of the great Italian poet Boccaccio, Uh, the Roman Ovid and the Greek Homer. And essentially what Dryden is saying is that if Chaucer is the father of English poetry and if he's in the great pantheon of European poetry, all of those poets who come later within the tradition of English poetry are by extension within the great pantheon uh, of world uh, literature. Now we might have expected Stoker to have consulted early editions of John Milton and Shakespeare in the library, but he didn't do so. Uh, It's quite surprising, I suppose, initially, uh, but presumably he didn't didn't call them up because he was well acquainted with the works. And if that suggestion is true, it may suggest uh, why, for example, Stoker didn't call up uh, any editions of the Bible uh, in the library. He was presumably spending his time at Marsh's library reading books in which he was personally interested, but which he didn't have access to uh, in his own collection or from the libraries of friends uh, and families. Now, the second category of books uh, that I'm going to uh, look at is travel uh, books. Uh, And the travel books that Stoker read uh, throughout his visits, and he'd often consult three or four books uh, during uh, one day, but the travel books that he he read throughout those visits are not ideologically neutral celebrations of travel and discovery. Uh, Instead, they justified and celebrated the virtues of English commercial, cultural and military influence across the globe. And it's hard to believe that Stoker was reading these 17th century travel books glorifying English exploration in the 1860s without uh, reading them as precursors of uh, and justifications for uh, the global uh, British Empire. Uh, John Harris's uh, famous Travels of, of 1705 uh, contains a comprehensive account of voyages and discoveries uh, undertaken uh, across the world during previous centuries. But Harris is less interested in the exploits of adventurers and explorers in general than with the exploits of English explorers uh, in particular, and demonstrating the long-standing supremacy of the English over their uh, competitors. Harris's travels uh, was dedicated to Queen Anne, and it invited her to take pride in the fact that, quote, the discoveries that have been successfully made of the religions, manners, customs, politics, and natural products of all parts of the world have been chiefly made by those of your nation. Uh, And he suggested that the result uh, of an Englishman going abroad and travelling was to realise just how good uh, the politics and constitution and religion uh, of England were in comparison with uh, abroad. 
Peter Halen's, for example, Cosmography as well, which was a book which uh, Stoker called up, went to great lengths to make clear the national uh, and nationalist rationale uh, for England's rights over the Americas, India and Africa. Now he's publishing this in the 1650s and asserting England's rights uh, over a large part uh, of the globe. He explicitly says that England's rights included the crown of France, the vassalage of Scotland and the right of first discovery, that's his quotation, in Estotiland, which is in essentially Canada, uh, Newfoundland, Northern Belgium, Guiana, the countries near the Cape of Good Hope, several of the Indian islands and some other places against all pretenders, essentially most of the world. Uh, a similar nationalistic bent uh, is evident in the earliest of the books which Stoker consulted, which is the 1625 edition uh, of the very influential and very famous travel book, uh, Perkis, His Pilgrims. And Perkis, like all of the other travel writers that Stoker consulted, was at pains to stress English travellers' early progress around the world, uh, into the uh, Red Sea, through the Arabian, Persian uh, and Indian Seas. So there's a very strong nationalistic bent, but it's a nationalistic uh, bent that chimes with uh, Stoker's uh, part in uh, Victorian society and his great uh, fascination with and his personal friendship with the great Victorian uh, explorers, uh, Stanley and Burton. But for the... uh, For the purposes of this paper, I want to focus on the third category of books, and that's the uh, pamphlets and the sectarian pamphlets uh, that uh, Stoker called up throughout his uh, visits to the library. Now, Stoker's uh, scholars of Gothic literature will probably be more interested in, for example, Stoker's engagement works of astrology from the 17th century. Uh, But for this purposes, I really want to focus on four volumes of bound pamphlets, uh, which Stoker uh, called up. Now, each volume consists of a number of separate pamphlets, published separately but bound together at some point after the last of the items was published. And for the owner of a a pamphlet, and I think that that this sort of composite uh, creation, essentially, is very uh, instructive, because for the owner of pamphlets, uh, the process of selection for binding inevitably forces one to choose which pamphlets are bound and which aren't bound. It forces on you uh, a logic in which you choose to bind some things, you choose not to bind other things, and you choose to bind them in a particular order. Now, you can choose to bind pamphlets by a whole number of variables, date, uh, author, place of publication, and so on. And what I want to suggest to you is that in the four volumes of pamphlets uh, that Stoker called up, in each of the cases... The volumes are bound, uh, not chronologically, but conceptually, and they're the product of a conscious decision to bind separate items together uh, to create a unified thematic narrative of Irish and British history uh, around and informed by a strong pre-existing conceptual framework. So all of the volumes tell uh, a particular story about the mortal peril faced by the Protestants of Ireland and England in the years after 1660 and why the Glorious Revolution had been necessary. And those volumes uh, helped their owners to make sense of the times in which they lived and then reinforce the political and religious views which led uh, to the thematic coherence of the, of the volume. So it's a self-reinforcing circle, essentially. I'm going to define them, those four volumes basically by their shelf mark numbers. I'm going to do that just to make them uh, very separate and also because the shelf marks haven't changed uh, in, t- in the intervening 
uh, 300 years since they were first put on the shelves. These are two of the first volumes uh, which he calls up. Uh, I'm going to first talk about H3313 and H3311, and this is the point at which you all think, oh no, he's going to talk about very bibliographical things and, and shelf marks. Uh, essentially, I want to deal with them uh, conceptually, and I'll try to uh, avoid the uh, perils of uh, libraries and librarians in talking to you uh, bibliographically and, and uh, extolling shelf marks. And what I want to suggest to you is that if we get beyond this initial trepidation with dealing with uh, libraries and catalogues and shelf marks, that these books can tell us uh, a lot about how the books were seen in the 17th century, but also why a young 18-year-old man uh, would call them up uh, in the mid-19th century. On his first visit to Marshes uh, in July uh, 1866, Stoker called up this volume, uh, which consists of seven pamphlets published between 1655 and 1688. Now, the first item in it uh, is a speech by James II in 1685 promising to protect uh, the Church of England. And then things begin to go uh, very wrong uh, in the pamphlets. The second uh, item is Henry Kerr's A Modest Inquiry Whether St. Peter Were Ever at Rome. And essentially the rest of the items in the volume are grouped together because they're showing the fear and trepidation of what's happening in England uh, in the 1680s. Uh, and Kerr marshals a whole series of arguments against the supremacy of Rome uh, and, uh, and the Pope there. As he said it, uh, a very important argument uh, at the time. The next item in that collection uh, is Peter Manby's uh, A Reformed Catechism Concerning the English Reformation. Now, Manby was, in the 17th century, that most dangerous uh, and despicable of men, uh, an Anglican cleric who'd converted to Catholicism uh, during the reign of James II. And Manby used, and this is why he was so disingenuous to, to, to Protestants, he used a reading of Gilbert Burnett's solidly Anglican history of the Reformation uh, to argue against the Reformation. So Burnett had put out a history of the Reformation. Uh, Manby came along and used the exact same sources in that history of the Reformation to argue uh, against uh, the Reformation. And the main villain, uh, apart from Cranmer and Cromwell, in that history, Man Manby's history, is Anne Boleyn. Uh, there's a less than subtle reference, shall we say, uh, to the rumours circulating in the 1530s about the exact nature of Anne Boleyn's relationship with her brother. And it's part of uh, a libelous uh, intent uh, against the Reformation. The Reformation was, on Manby's reading of Burnett's history, the spawn of a small, ungodly and hypocritical clique. And the implication in 1687 is that, as easy as it had been to do it, uh, the Reformation in law in the 1530s, it would be as easy to undo it uh, in the 1680s. And the volume ends with a 200-page uh, pamphlet, uh, a papist misrepresented and represented, which might stand as the archetype of uh, an anti-catechism of, of Catholicism, or even a, a catechism of anti-Catholicism. But essentially there's a thematic coherence there. Somebody uh, has bound these together to tell a story, and this is what Stoker came uh, to read first. He came to read it with a friend of his, both of them sat uh, at the table together, and they read it on a series of days. So it's a significant pamphlet uh, to them. The second time that uh, Stoker came into the library, he called up uh, another volume, the one beside it, H3311, so two along from the shelf. Now, if you think about it, there are hundreds of volumes of pamphlets that Stoker can call up. 
in a library of 30,000 books. There are about 450 volumes uh, of pamphlets that he could have called up. And he calls up H313 and H311 from the catalogue. This has exactly the same uh, coherent uh, theme uh, through it. It is essentially uh, a history of Ireland in bound pamphlets, which starts with the Irish plot of 1678 and 1679, and ends 11 pamphlets later uh, with the relief of Londonderry uh, with George Walker's uh, pamphlet. So somebody is creating a narrative in the 17th century, explaining their own uh, time. And this is, again, what he comes in, he specifically uh, calls up. The next set of pamphlets that uh, Stoker looks at is another uh, volume. It's G4, G3413. He reads it on the significant date, or the unsignificant date of the 5th of November. Again, there would have been bonfires around Dublin at the time uh, for celebrating the, uh, the 5th uh, of November. And that is very strongly anti-Catholic, as the other uh, bound pamphlets are, but very strongly theologically uh, anti-Catholic. In this volume, we find not politics, but religion. Uh, it begins, as the others do, with a loyal address to James II, and then focuses on pamphlets like these, which relate to errors in Catholic doctrine. So we have Daniel Whitby's A Treatise in Confutation of the Latin Service. We have Tillotson's A Discourse Against Transubstantiation, uh, and Claggett's A Discourse Concerning the Pretended Sacrament of Extreme Unction. Again, these are all designed to show the notorious innovations of Rome, for which there's no authority in the Bible or the early practice uh, of the Church. And then finally... Stoker calls up another uh, volume of bound pamphlets, uh, which is at L1429. And again, quite significant in that they still remain at the same place on the shelf, so we can find exactly what they were. If the library had changed around, it would be hard uh, to do this. And in this volume, he calls it up uh, on his last visit to the library, uh, 30th of March, 1867. And L1429 contains 17 separate pamphlets published between 1655 uh, and 1668. And this volume concentrates on anti-Catholic pamphlets in general, but anti-Jesuit pamphlets uh, in particular. And for early modern Protestants, the Jesuits are obviously uh, the most dangerous and fanatical of all Roman Catholics. But what's most striking about the volume, and it, seems, it can seem mad to us or, or crazy, is this volume is all about the role of the Jesuits in causing the Great Fire of London. Uh, and in this context, it's significant that on the same day that Stoker called up this volume of pamphlets uh, proving how the Jesuits had caused the Great Fire of London, on that same day he called up John Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, which shows how the Catholics had burnt the Protestants uh, under the reign of, of bloody Queen Mary in the 16th uh, century. This is my favourite one of the anti-Catholic sectarian pamphlets. To an extent, I think I mentioned to Paul before, there's only so much sectarian filth you can read before you start feeling dirty. And really, coming through this volume, I'm beginning to feel very dirty and very sullied. This is Pyrotechnica Loyolana. Uh, and it's obviously a weak pun upon the name of the founder of the Jesuits, Ignatius Loyola, and the name of the classical god of fire, Ignatius. 
Uh, and it assures uh, readers, and it goes through in detail all of the things that the Catholics uh, have done, and the Jesuits in particular, and it assures them that the Jesuits are not merely religious opponents, but, it says, the incendiaries of the whole world, the ruiners of cities, the poisoners of kingdoms, the murderers of kings, the archetypes of rebellion. And for me, it's interesting that of all the volumes in all the libraries in all the world that Stoker uh, could have called up, they're focused uh, thematically. They're focused uh, thematically by the original owners, and then he has sought these out uh, to read them. And the question has to be then, why and, and, and how? There's definitely an Irish context to all of these volumes, but then there's something else which is particularly curious, and I think may be very uh, significant in the terms of uh, Stoker and, 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 and Paul Murray is much more uh, qualified uh, uh, to talk about this. And it's the fact that within those volumes, which are anti-Catholic, something strange happens uh, in three of them. And it's that the story of the clear concept of the struggle between good and evil, Christ and anti-Christ, in terms of Protestantism and Catholicism, uh, is supplemented in three of them. Not in all of them, but three of them. And it's supplemented in three of those volumes by adding in, in a very careful way, one pamphlet against Islam and the Turks. So, for example, uh, among the pyrophobic, shall we say that, I'll coin the phrase, pyrophobic anti-Jesuit tracts in, in L1429, there's a 1664 pamphlet which purports to reproduce the prophecies of Martin Luther uh, in the 1520s concerning the role of Turks in bringing about the fall of Rome. And according to Luther in this pamphlet, he says, The Turk shall give a great clap to Germany. Methinks I see him marching through and through the whole body of the empire. Whoso liveth one hundred years and upwards will see the same accomplished. I oftentimes do contemplate thereon, and thinking on the great misery which will ensue on the empire, I do sweat thereat. Nevertheless, Germany goeth on in sin and refuseth to be helped. No human power can best the Turk, but only that man who is named Christ. And that was published in the 1520s, republished in the uh, 1660s. And the century and a half after Luther's uh, initial comments on Islam seemed to bear out the warnings about the spread of the Turk throughout Europe. But the balance of power, as we know, began to change in the 1680s. The Turks got as far as the gates of Vienna in 1683, but their defeat there uh, marked the beginning of a bitter war which led to the gradual but steady decline of their influence uh, in Central and Southeastern uh, Europe. And the defeat of the Muslim forces at Vienna was celebrated uh, across uh, Europe. And in that context, uh, and particularly in the context of Stoker's uh, reading, it seems particularly significant to me that H313, that volume of pamphlets that we saw which gave the story of Irish history and culminates in the victory at the siege of the uh, Battle of Londonderry, at the end has this pamphlet added in, uh, which is a celebration uh, of the defeat of the Turks at the siege uh, of Vienna. So it makes a European context for an Irish story uh, that Antichrist is being beaten back in Derry in 1689 and also at Vienna uh, in 1683. Uh, and I think it's clear that they're quite deliberate in placing them. It would have been possible, for example, to perhaps put uh, a number of the Islamic pamphlets together, but binding them separately, uh, one in a series of volumes, I think, 
uh, is quite uh, significant. And the increasing confidence that it was possible to fight and win against the forces of evil is also evident in a pamphlet produced in London uh, in 1687 about the great successes of the Venetians uh, against the Turks uh, in the eastern Mediterranean. And that was bound in with the anti-Catholic pamphlets that Stoker read on his first visit to the library. Now that was the volume which begins with the Loyal Address of 1685 and then a whole series of pamphlets frightened and terrified about what the Catholics are doing uh, in England. But bound into that at the back is a pamphlet which shows it is possible to fight against Antichrist uh, and win. And that's uh, the Turk uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean. And in that context, the author of the pamphlet says that the tide has turned against the haughty Turk, who's run down on every side, chased out of Hungary, expelled the Moria, losing ground in Dalmatia, and in a word, the Ottoman Empire, according to all human reason, is hastening to its period. And it's interesting that in that volume uh, in 1687, it specifically mentions Hungary, Transylvania, uh, and Wallachia. And Hungary here is an important uh, context because, as, as Paul Murray and myself have discovered o- over the summer, uh, Hungary and, and Transylvania is not some backward, uh, out-of-the-way place in the 17th century uh, imagination. It's actually uh, very centrally there, not only in these uh, political and sectarian pamphlets that we find, but actually in all of the travel books which Stoker called up, uh, Transylvania, Wallachia, uh, and that... Uh, those geographical areas which turn up uh, in Dracula uh, are there. And Hungary and Wallachia are important because uh, in all of the travel books, as they'll tell you, uh, those areas are settled in the early medieval times by the Saxons, so they're not unconnected uh, to Britain. They are Saxon lands. Uh, And throughout the 16th century, they're a battleground for the Reformation between the Catholics and the Protestants. After the battles between the Catholics and the Protestants, they are a battleground between Christians uh, and Islam. So Hungary and Transylvania is always, uh, in the 16th uh, and 17th century, uh, a dangerous, ever-contested frontier. This is a map in one of the books uh, which Stoker called up uh, of Hungary and and Transylvania. As you'll see from the uh, next image, this is the next map which shows uh, Turkey uh, in Europe. Uh, and it shows that the Turks have been beaten back from Vienna and are now in uh, southeastern uh, Europe. And you can see it from a close-up that the borderland in the 17th century between Christian and Turk is Transylvania. So it's a central part of the worldview uh, between Christ and Antichrist. It's not a, a mere incidental uh, point. So we don't know, we don't have Stoker's notes from the period, we don't know how he absolutely uh, read uh, these items, but I think it's possible to look at the consistency of the themes uh, in uh, the books that he called up. I should say that I'm not stress, I'm not claiming that it is here in Marsh's library that Stoker uh, discovered uh, Vlad uh, and, uh, uh, and Dracula and so on. What I'm suggesting by contrast, is that uh, these dichotomies between Christ and Antichrist, and between Protestantism and Catholicism, between Islam and Christianity, are just part of the everyday 17th century worldview. And that's a worldview that Stoker in the mid-19th century is much closer to than we, uh, than we think. And for me, Stoker is in very many ways the quintessential uh, 19th century uh, middle-class uh, Protestant. 
In some ways, he's quite an intriguing character because he is not, uh, he, he moves beyond uh, many of the assumptions of his class uh, and uh, of, his, of his social milieu. Stoker himself was very disparaging of some of his in-laws who were orange men in the nor- north. Uh, he had no problem uh, with uh, Roman Catholics. In fact, the, the person who he came to read the anti-Catholic pamphlets with, John J. Lawler, was a Roman Catholic himself. Uh, and he was entirely comfortable with home rule uh, in the 1880s uh, and the 1890s. But he was a man, as far as we know, of conventional Anglican piety, and the dichotomies of the 17th century were well known to him. They would have been meat and drink to him. They're strange to us today in what some people have taken to calling uh, post-Christian Ireland, uh, but in the mid-19th century uh, would have been known to uh, everybody. And that world of the 17th century in the mid-19th century uh, was his world. The land settlement agitated against by nationalists in mid-19th century Ireland was the Williamite uh, land settlement, and many of those tensions were still alive. And even as a microcosm, I can demonstrate that to you. That's why in 1815, Marsh, in Marsh's library, there's a copy of uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, the book that Stoker called up on his last visit. In that book, there's uh, some marginalia written in 1815 by a, by a reader beside the death of, of King John by a, by, a, by a monk. And in 1815, uh, one reader has written... Even today they do the same, treacherous villains, 1815. So it was hard not to read early modern material in the 19th century through the lens of sectarianism. Uh, It helps to explain why, for example, in the reader records from the mid-19th century, everybody is given their name apart from RC clergymen. There's a sort of tension between when Roman Catholics uh, clergymen come in Uh, to read. This is the world in which uh, Stoker grew up and to his credit he seems to have moved on and been comfortable with uh, Catholics, Catholic emancipation uh, and home rule. But it may help to suggest, those tensions may help to suggest why uh, Stoker is not one of those Irish authors who moves abroad and constantly refers back to the old country, like Joyce or or any of the others, or O'Casey and so on. Why so little of Stoker's fiction in the mid to late 19th century uh, is focused uh, on Ireland. I'll conclude uh, uh, with uh, just uh, one uh, quotation uh, from the service of the 5th of November in celebration uh, of deliverance. And one of the prescribed texts is Psalm 124. uh, And uh, a portion of that reads, Blessed be the Lord who hath not given us a prey for their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now I don't want to make too much of that. I don't want to uh, make too much of uh, the idea of teeth and, uh, and, and, and the monster and, uh, and so on. But I do want to suggest that Stoker is very much an Irish-British Protestant of the mid-19th century, a man intensely aware of the differences between Irish men and women uh, in the mid-19th century. And that that helps to explain the line in Jonathan Harker's notebook in Dracula, in which Jonathan Harker uh, recounts, quote, the old centuries had and have powers of their own which mere modernity cannot kill. 
and the essence of mid-19th century Ireland is that the past has powers that modernity cannot kill. Thank you.